We are in Ezekiel chapter 37, if you'd like to open up there. Ezekiel chapter 37, and this is a series. We're almost done with this series. We have a couple more messages. Uh, The series that we've been studying uh, is the promises and the covenants of God, specifically looking at the promises and covenants of God to the nation of Israel, specifically God's promises to restore them and to regather them to the land and to resurrect them as a nation in the last days. So I encourage you to go back and listen to the messages because they're all kind of tied together. They're building upon uh, the previous message. So this message, you would probably need to hear last week's message to really uh, have the pretext of of what we're talking about. But um, we're in Ezekiel 37. We looked at Ezekiel 36 last Sunday. And I've entitled this message this morning, Ezekiel 37, Can These Bones Live? Can these bones live? Speaking of the resurrection of the nation of Israel. So let's start off in Ezekiel 37, verses 11 through 14. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say our bones are dry, our hope is cut off, and we ourselves, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. When I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves, I will put my spirit in you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. Last week when we were in Ezekiel 36, and again, I encourage you to listen to the message if you weren't here, covered a lot of information. Uh, It was the prophecy of God preparing the land of Israel after the Jews would be out of the land for a long period of time, and the land would pretty much just go to nothing. Uh, It would become a wasteland when the Jews were not in their promised land, that God promised to regather them back into their literal physical homeland uh, of Israel, the land that God had promised to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We read in Ezekiel 36, verse 17, Son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land... They defiled it by their own ways and deeds. To me, their way was like the uncleanness of a woman in her customary impurity. Therefore, I poured out my fury on them for the blood that they had shed on the land and for their idols with which they had defiled it. So I scattered them among the nations and they were dispersed throughout the countries. I judged them according to their ways and their deeds. When they came to the nations, wherever they went, they profaned my holy name. When they said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they have gone out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations, wherever they went. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. Verse 24. For I will take you from among the nations. I will gather you out of all countries And bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. 
I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Verse 28, then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God. So you notice here that God is saying, I'm going to do this for my name's sake. He's not doing it for the, for the sake of, of Israel or for the Jews because they deserve it or because they're worthy. Uh, there's none worthy. There's none righteous. No, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But God says, because uh, my holy name has been profaned and blasphemed because of you being scattered to the nations... And the people are going to say, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they have gone out of his land. God says, for my name's sake, not for your sake, O Israel, but for my name's sake, because my name has been profaned among the nations, I am going to regather you into your land, back into your land. For my name's sake, God says. Why? Because God put his name upon this nation, Israel, governed by God, striving with God. Uh, Jacob, no longer shall your name be called Jacob. Your name shall from this point be called Israel. God put his name upon the nation. So wherever they have gone, they carry his name and his law with them. And because they were scattered throughout the nations, and notice here that it is plural, the nations and the countries where you have been scattered. So this is not speaking of the Babylonian captivity, which Ezekiel was part of the Babylonian captivity. He was carried away captive into Babylon. Jeremiah was the prophet ministering to the Jews in Jerusalem. Ezekiel was the prophet ministering to the Jews in Babylon. So this was not about the uh, uh, coming back to the land after the Babylonian captivity. That would have been one nation. These are multiple nations, literally all around the world. The Jews would be scattered, and God says, I'm going to gather you back from the nations wherever you have gone, from the countries, and I'm going to bring you back into your own land. This is a very specific prophecy. It's a very specific promise. This prophecy was given some 2,600 years ago, and really, it was never fulfilled up until our generation. This prophecy was fulfilled in our lifetime, actually. First, God was going to regather the people back into the land. Actually, first, he says, I'm going to prepare the land to receive you back. The land is going to come back from the dead, and you're going to uh, have fruits and uh, export your fruits all to other nations, which is exactly what happened. Uh, and then once the land is prepared for you, then you're going to come back into the land. But, the, but they were going to come back into the land in unbelief, and then God's going to save them. That, so they'll be reborn physically as a nation. The land would first be restored, the nation would come back, they would be reborn physically as a nation, and then they would be reborn spiritually as a nation in that order. So they're going to be regathered in unbelief, and then there would be a spiritual rebirth. We know that the promises of God are irrevocable. Romans chapter 11 in the New Testament tells us this, that the promises of God, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God cannot break his word and he will not break his promises to the Jews. Um, Amir Sarfati from Behold uh, Israel Ministries has said that, you know, the promises of God to Israel, as the church sees the promises of God fulfilled to Israel, that's like our insurance policy that God's going to keep his promises to the church. In other words, if God breaks his covenantal promise to the Jews, then how can we be sure he's not going to break his promise to the Christians? So it's, it, it only stands to reason that God must fulfill his word and he must fulfill his promises to Israel. Uh, otherwise, he's a God that doesn't keep his word. And we know that that's blasphemy to even think that. So we read this amazing, amazing prophecy in uh, Ezekiel chapter 37. Let's go back to verse 1 of Ezekiel 37. We read this. The hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley, and it was full of bones. Then he caused me to pass by them all around, and behold, there were very many in the open valley, and indeed, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? So I answered, O Lord, you know. He continues in verse 4. Again, he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. 
Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Surely I will cause breath to enter into you, and you shall live. I will put sinews on you, and bring flesh upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a noise, and suddenly a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to bone. Indeed, as I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them over, but there was no breath in them. Also, he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived and stood upon their feet, an exceedingly great army. So these scattered bones represented the scattered, broken, dead nation of Israel. And God was saying, I'm going to bring these bones back to life. I am going to uh, cause breath to enter into you and you shall live. I'm going to cause sinews to grow on you, flesh upon you, cover you with skin, put breath in you. And then he says, I'm going to breathe my spirit into you and you're going to come alive. Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. It is, it is literally uh, a resurrection from the dead is what God is predicting here, not of an individual, but of a nation, the entire nation of Israel. He continues in verse 11, then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say, our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of of Israel. Now, the amazing thing is, is that um, this is exactly how the Jews felt at the end of World War II. There really was no time in their history that they experienced the level of destruction and devastation as they did, of course, during the Holocaust. No people have ever suffered as greatly as the Jews have suffered. As a matter of fact, no people have ever suffered as greatly as the Jews before the Holocaust as a group of people. They have been persecuted and hated everywhere they've gone for pretty much all of their history unless they were in their own land. Uh, whenever they were among the nations, they were scapegoats, they were blamed for things, they were persecuted, uh, they were accused of doing things that weren't true, uh, they were forced to convert to uh, either Islam or Christianity under pains of death. If they wouldn't convert, they were killed. They were driven out everywhere they went. They never really were able to be established. However, uh, the fulfillment of this prophecy, I believe, uh, took place on May 14, 1948, when the Jews once again came back into their homeland after being dispersed for nearly 2,000 years. God regathered them in fulfillment of this prophecy. Now, we have the benefit of hindsight. We could see how exactly this was fulfilled and how it played out. Uh, for many centuries and even millennia, people didn't understand this prophecy and they tried to allegorize it or, or, or spiritualize it or, or make it a metaphor. But this is a literal, physical prophecy of the death of a nation and the rebirth of the nation and the regathering of the nation into their own land. Again, uh, God's commitment and his faithfulness to the Jews should be an encouragement to the church that God is faithful and that he keeps his promises and he keeps his covenants uh, to his people. Now we know that they were carried away captive because of idolatry and because of unbelief. The first captivity for the Jews took place in 722 BC when Assyria carried away captive the ten northern tribes. The nation of Israel, the ten northern tribes, were carried away captive, again, because of their disobedience, because of their idolatry, because they went after other gods, they offered human sacrifices in the land, and so forth. Uh, God carried them away captive, the ten northern tribes, in 722 B.C. Now, in 586 B.C., the southern nation of Judah, the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, 
uh, made up the, the southern nation of Judah. You had Israel and you had Judah. Uh, and Judah was carried away captive into Babylon in 586 B.C. And it's interesting that God had predicted this. God had predicted, even with Moses, uh, that they were going to uh, go after other gods, that they were going to be rebellious, that God was going to have to judge them. Uh, but God was not going to break his covenantal promises ever uh, to the Jews, although they would suffer for unbelief and idolatry. For example, in Leviticus chapter 26 and verse 36, we read some of this last week, but just as a reminder, Leviticus chapter 26 and verse 36. This is written by Moses hundreds and hundreds of years uh, before all of these events took place. We read this, And as for those of you who are left, I will send faintness into their hearts in the lands of their enemies. The sound of a shaken leaf shall cause them to flee. They shall flee as though fleeing from a sword. And they shall fall when no one pursues. They shall stumble over one another as it were before a sword when no one pursues. And you shall have no power to stand before your enemies. You shall perish among the nations, plural. And the land of your enemies shall eat you up. And those of you who are left shall waste away in their iniquity in your enemies' lands. Also in their father's iniquities which are with them they shall waste away. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers with their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to me and that they also have walked contrary to me and that I also have walked contrary to them and have brought them into the land of their enemies, if their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they accept their guilt, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham I will remember." I will remember the land. The land also shall be left empty by them. It will enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them. They will accept their guilt because they despised my judgments and because their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet for all that, when they're in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away, nor shall I abhor them to utterly destroy them and break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. But for their sake I will remember the covenant of their ancestors, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. So there was a warning that they would be punished by God for their unbelief and their idolatry and their wickedness. But God was never going to break his covenant with them or his covenant to give them the promised land. God says, I'm going to bring you back to your land. I'm not going to forsake you. I'm going to remember the covenant that I made with you. And I'm going to remember the land of Israel, the holy land, the promised land. So the Jews had been carried away captive to Babylon. They returned uh, 70 years after. They came back into the land and uh, rebuilt uh, the city of Jerusalem. They rebuilt the temple, as you know, uh, although they didn't have a king after that final king of Judah was carried away captive to Babylon. Uh, that was the end of the, uh, the kings of Judah. The line was cut off at that point until Jesus Christ came, of course, and then he was rejected. Uh, by, by the Jews when he rode in on Palm Sunday in fulfillment of Daniel uh, chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, which says the Messiah will come and he will be cut off and he will have nothing. And so in 70 AD, after the rejection of the Messiah Jesus Christ, in 70 AD, once again, the Jews were uh, driven out of their land. Uh, the general Titus and the Fourth Roman Legion came, surrounded Jerusalem, and basically destroyed the city of Jerusalem and drove the Jews out of their land because the Jews continued to rebel uh, against the Roman emperors and against the Roman uh, rule over Israel and over Jerusalem. So uh, in 70 AD and then actually in uh, 132 AD under Emperor Hadrian, they were just completely decimated by the Romans and they were not allowed to remain in their land. All the Jewish males had to leave. The old, the infirmed, the sick, and, and the very young were the only ones that were allowed by Hadrian to stay in Jerusalem. He changed the name to Aelia Capitolina, naming Jerusalem after himself, and he changed the name of Israel to Palestine to name it after their perpetual 
enemies, the Philistines, as a slight and as a slap in their face. And from that point on, the Jews were driven all over the earth. They, they went to all the nations of the earth. Uh, and, and so all of these predictions, all of these prophecies have come true for God's people Israel. Now, I mentioned this last week. It, it was, it's amazing how specific some of these prophecies are considering they were written, you know, by Moses. The first five books of the Bible written by Moses, maybe 1500 B.C., 1400 B.C., 1350 B.C., something like that. A long time ago, 3,500 years ago, these prophecies were written. And we see that they were fulfilled exactly. I mean, you had to have the hindsight of time to look back, uh, the benefit of hindsight. But it's amazing to see the prophecies and how specifically they were fulfilled. For example... In Deuteronomy chapter 28, in verse 45, God predicts that there would be cannibalism among their people. He says this, Moreover, all these curses shall come upon you and pursue and overtake you until you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes which he commanded you. And they shall be upon you for a sign and for a wonder and on your descendants forever. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness of heart for the abundance of everything. Therefore, you shall serve your enemies, whom the Lord will send against you, in hunger, in thirst, in nakedness, and in need of everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flies, a nation whose language you will not understand, a nation of fierce countenance which does not respect the elderly nor show favor to the young. And they shall eat the increase of your livestock and the produce of your land until you are destroyed. They shall not leave you grain or new wine or oil or the increase of your cattle or the offspring of your flocks until they have destroyed you. They shall besiege you at your gates, specifically prophesying that they would be besieged. They will besiege you at your gates until your high and fortified walls in which you trust come down throughout all, their, all your land. And they shall besiege you at your gates throughout all your land which the Lord your God has given you. And here's this terrible prophecy, God telling them that what was going to happen. You shall eat the fruit of your own body, the flesh of your sons and your daughters, whom the Lord your God has given you in the siege and desperate straits in which your enemy shall distress you. God is laying it out for them way in advance, warning them, warning them, warning them not to turn away from him and not to turn and worship other gods. But of course, God knew the future. He's telling them because he knows the future. This is what is going to happen. I'm telling you these things uh, in advance so that when they come to pass, you will believe uh, that I am he, Jesus would say. Prophecy builds our faith in the word of God. And it's amazing that this is exactly what the Jews experienced time and time again. They went after other idols, other gods. They started to offer their children as human sacrifices to the gods of the nations. And then God judged them, and he brought their enemies against them. And, and these prophecies were fulfilled literally over and over again throughout their history. For example, in 2 Kings in chapter 6 and verse 24, when Syria was besieging Samaria. Samaria was the capital of the ten northern tribes, the kingdom of Israel. And we read this. It happened after this that Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, gathered all his army and went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria. And indeed, they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and one-fourth of a cab of dove droppings for five shekels of silver. People were so desperate that they would pay for dove droppings so that they could light a fire with it in order to boil a donkey's head to get whatever meat you could get off of the head of the donkey for 80 shekels of silver. That's how, that's how desperate the people were for food. He says in verse 26, Then as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him saying, Help, my lord, O king. And he said, if the Lord does not help you, where can I find help for you? 
from the threshing floor or from the winepress? Then the king said to her, What is troubling you? And she answered, This woman said to me, Give your son that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And I said to her on the next day, Give your son that we may eat him, but she has hidden her son. Now when it happened, when the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. And as he passed by on the wall, the people looked, and there underneath he had sackcloth on his body. Exactly as God predicted would happen, they would be besieged by their enemies, they would be starving to death, and they would even begin to eat their own children. Unbelievable, but God predicted that this was what was going to happen. Uh, It's interesting that in 70 AD, the Jewish Roman historian Josephus tells us that when, again, this time Jerusalem was besieged by the Romans, the people were again starving to death and cannibalism was something that was being reported in Jerusalem. I'm going to read to you from, uh, from Josephus here where he talks about this. And Josephus was not a Christian. He was a Jewish historian that the Romans uh, basically had uh, him write. Uh, he was a general, actually, of, the, uh, uh, of Judah and uh, was fighting against the Romans. And then when the Romans overwhelmed and overcame uh, Jerusalem in 70 AD, then uh, he became like a historian for the Romans, and he documented uh, uh, history of the Jews. And we read this about uh, this siege of 70 AD, of the Roman siege. He says the story, this says the story of Mary of Bethesda is a story of cannibalism told by Josephus in his book Jewish War, his writings Jewish War, which occurred as a consequence of famine and starvation during the siege of Jerusalem in August of AD 70 by the Roman legions commanded by Titus. He was the emperor. The tale is only one account of the horrors suffered at Jerusalem in the summer of 70 AD. Josephus relates that there was a Mary, daughter of Eleazar, originally from the village of Bethusda, or Bethusba, in the district of Perea, east of the Jordan River, who had previously fled to Jerusalem. Distinguished in family and fortune, her property, treasures, and food had been plundered by the Jewish defenders of the city during the siege. Famine was, quote, eating her heart out and rage consuming her still faster, unquote. Maddened by hunger, she took the infant at her breast and said to him, Poor little mite, in war, famine, and civil strife, why should I keep you alive? With the Romans there is only slavery, and that only if alive when they come. But famine is forestalling slavery, and the partisans are crueler, Then either, come, you must be food for me, to the partisans in an avenging spirit, and to the world as a tale, the only thing left to fill up the measure of Jewish misery. And in defiance of all natural feelings, she killed her son, then roasted him, and ate one half, hiding the rest. Exactly as God predicted would happen that they would eat their own children. Unbelievable, and yet God's word uh, is always true. Now, it is, it is interesting that the Jews after this, after 70 AD and then 130 AD, they were scattered for 1,900 years approximately to all the nations of the earth. They, they literally were all on every continent. The Jews were on every continent, uh, but there was a very, very small remnant only left in the Promised Land, in the Holy Land, for this 1,900 years. They uh, are really the only people in human history who have come back after being gone from a homeland, homeland for so long. Uh, most, most nations can't survive uh, once they're removed from their homeland and their cultures, and their traditions, and their language, and their religions, and so forth. And uh, the Jews uh, lost their language. The Hebrew language was really lost to history after uh, 586 B.C. They began to speak the Babylonian Aramaic uh, when they uh, went to Babylon. And when they came back, as a matter of fact, into the land, 
only the religious leaders spoke Hebrew. It was kind of like the Roman Catholic Church speaking Latin and no one else understood Latin. That's how it was uh, even at the time of Christ. Only the religious Jews really spoke Hebrew. It was the religious language only the elite understood. Everyone else spoke the common Aramaic or the Koine Greek at the time the New Testament was written. So when the Jews were scattered to all the nations of the earth, the Hebrew language was lost to history. Nobody spoke, uh, they, they spoke Yiddish and they had some other variations of the Hebrew language, but the ancient Hebrew la language was lost to history uh, until the Jews came back into their land and they resurrected the language. They actually got all the people left who knew the language of Hebrew and understood it and they taught it in their schools to all of their children so that today in Israel, Hebrew is the language that is spoken. Everybody that lives in, in, in Israel today speaks Hebrew. It was a resurrected language that had been dead for almost 2,500 years. Again, against all odds, uh, and it's never happened before in history for any nation to come back to their land and to be restored and to be uh, reborn, uh, as it were. Around 1895, the Zionist uh, Theodor Herzl founded the Zionist movement. He was an Austrian Jew uh, who was very upset and concerned by the anti-Semitism in Europe in the late 19th century that was beginning to uh, grow and ferment there in uh, Europe. And he... Uh, was a journalist, very intelligent man. He was a journalist who was watching the trial of a Jewish man in Paris, France, named Dreyfus, who was being falsely accused and, and so forth. And that's when he realized uh, Europe is getting very dangerous for us Jews. We need, to, we need to get a homeland and we need to get out of here. And so uh, in 1897, he started the Zionist movement and uh, he wrote the... Uh, 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 Der Judenstaat, the Jewish state, as a paper and published it. And the Zionist movement was birthed where Jews were all of a sudden, once again after 1900 years, interested in coming back to their homeland, back to the promised land of Israel. And, uh, and, and initially, the European nations, to some degree, they supported it until, of course, they ran into interference with the Arab nations that did not want the Jews back uh, there in the land. And uh, the British especially really uh, did the Jews wrong because uh, the British did not want to cut off their oil supplies of the oil that was being found during the Industrial Revolution. All this oil was coming from the Middle East, and they didn't want to upset Saudi Arabia and Iraq and Iran and the, and the oil-producing nations. So they really didn't favor the Jews coming back into uh, their land. But the, this, this rebirth of the nation of Israel began there uh, in the late 19th century uh, under Theodore Herzl. Uh, then the British people were, uh, uh, they, they promised the Jews a homeland, but not the promised land. It's interesting that in 1903, the British Parliament said, well, we'll give you Uganda. Because Uganda was part of Eastern Africa and part of the British Empire at that time. And so they at least acknowledged that the Jews deserved to have their own land. Uh, but because, again, because of the Arabs, they didn't want to upset the Arabs and send the Jews back with their permission back to Israel. So they offered them Uganda, which, of course, the Jews refused. If they were going to have a land, they wanted their national homeland. They wanted their fatherland uh, and, and, and the land that God had given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In 1917, towards the end of World War I, the Ottoman Turks, who had ruled over through the Ottoman Empire, ruled over the entire Middle East, they lost that war, uh, World War I. And after 400 years uh, of um, Turkish domination of Israel, the Turks were finally removed and the Turkish, uh, Ottoman Turkish Empire was broken up by the Allied forces that were victorious in World War I. And... Uh, the British took over responsibility through the British mandate after World War I to control and oversee the Holy Land, the Promised Land, which at this point was, was still called Palestine. Now, Heim Weizmann, who was a brilliant Jewish chemist, he was someone who the uh, British gave credit for helping the British to win World War I because he was a chemist who created a synthetic acetone, which was used to make their explosives and their weapons. So a lot of people said without Heim Weizmann, uh, we would have not won World War I. It's because of this man's 
uh, ingenuity and intelligence and so forth. And so they wanted to honor Heim Weizmann and, and give him accolades and so forth. But he said he didn't want money. He didn't want treasure. He didn't really care about uh, any esteem. He wanted a homeland for his people, the Jews. So the handwriting was on the wall uh, that things were going to get difficult for the Jews in Europe. And certainly things uh, uh, deteriorated very, very quickly after World War I for the Jews living specifically uh, there in Europe, Western Europe. Now, Hitler came on the scene, and, and, and Hitler was uh, an anti-Semite to, to the bone, to the core. He wrote Mein Kampf. He blamed the Jews. Uh, the Jews have always been scapegoats throughout their history. He blamed the Jews for, number one, for the Germans losing World War I, uh, probably because of Heim Weizmann helping the British to win World War I. So he blamed the Jews. He said the reason the Germans, the great German people lost World War I, and he was a soldier. Hitler fought in World War I, and it was a devastating loss for the prideful uh, German people to lose. Uh, and, and, and so he blamed the Jews. He said if it wasn't for the Jews, we would have won World War I. So that was in the 1920s when he was coming on the scene. That's what he was saying. Uh, and then... Uh, he, he just uh, blamed the Jews for everything. The economy of Germany collapsed after uh, the late 1920s. Uh, they uh, were having to pay reparations. They were having to rebuild all of Europe because they lost the war. And so they had to rebuild uh, the countries that they had bombed and destroyed and so forth, specifically, uh, specifically Great Britain. And so he, he then blamed the Jews for the collapse of the Deutschmark, for the collapse of the... German currency, because the Jews were the bankers, the Rothschilds and so forth. They were Jewish bankers. And so he said, it's the fault of the Jews that our economy has collapsed and unemployment is going through the roof and nobody has jobs. So they, they made the, the Jewish people a scapegoat. And that is uh, uh, when the real danger began for the Jewish people in Europe in the 1930s, the early 1930s. Initially, the persecution started somewhat slowly. It was just more of a bias and a prejudice in the streets that the people felt toward the Jews. Uh, it, it was this, it was this uh, desire for the German people to just get rid of the Jews. They didn't want to kill them necessarily. They just didn't want them in Germany anymore. Uh, then they began to vandalize their businesses and throw rocks through their windows, uh, their shop windows and so forth. Uh, and then eventually they began to forbid the Jews from living in German areas. And if you wanted to stay as a Jew, you had to go to what they were calling the ghettos, which were walled communities where they would take all the Jews and put them in and build walls around them and have guards with machine guns at the gates while they were deciding what they were going to do with the Jews. They did not want them. Hitler and the Germans did not want them, and specifically the Nazis did not want them in Germany uh, anymore. And of course, from there, they began to liquidate these ghettos, put the Jews onto trains, and take them specifically, initially, starting in 1942, into Poland, uh, where they began to put the Jews into these work camps to go and to help build the war machine for the Germans. And uh, eventually, they set up these extermination camps next to these work camps. For example, Auschwitz uh, was the work camp in Poland, and Birkenau and Treblinka and Mauthausen were the extermination camps. I mean, it was something they planned. They wanted to kill every single Jew, but they wanted to use them up first and have them work in their factories to build up their war machine, and then when they weren't useful anymore, they would exterminate them. They used to line them up and machine gun them down by the tens of thousands, even as they went into Russia, into Poland. Uh, Hitler was maniacal about wanting to eradicate the German people from the face of the earth. That's why he was going even into Russia and attacked the Soviet Union, who were their allies, because he wanted to kill the Jews. There were a lot of Jews in the Soviet Union that Hitler wanted to eradicate, and they would line them up and shoot them. But after they killed, you know, hundreds of thousands of Jews with bullets, they said, this is just taking way too many bullets. We have to find a more efficient way to kill these Jews. And so uh, Himmler and the others uh, put together these plans to create these extermination camps. The Jews were the ones as slaves who built the extermination camps 
when they began to empty out the ghettos and bring the people on the trains. As soon as they got off the trains, they began to separate the families, take the children away from the parents and so forth. Primarily, all the children were instantly gassed in gas chambers where they were, basically what they were told is we're going to give you a shower to kill lice. And they used this gas called Zyklon B, which the Germans had developed to, as a pesticide to kill lice. And they decided, hey, this, uh, this will work to kill the Jews. Matter of fact, at one point they were actually piping in gas exhaust into closed buildings, but they said it took too long to kill the people with pumping gas from diesel trucks into these buildings and then breathing the air in. So they came up with Zyklon B as a way to uh, eradicate and exterminate the Jewish race. That's what Hitler wanted to do. They would separate the children. Instantly the children would go to the gas chambers and then they set up the crematoriums or the incinerators to burn the bodies. It's an unbelievable thing. It's an unbelievable thing that we need to understand and we need to know was real history and we need to... Um, teach our children that the Holocaust really happened and that people really did this to other people, really, in our lifetime. I mean, not that long ago, in the 1940s. Uh, so Hitler uh, was a national socialist. He was a socialist, by the way, not just a fascist. He was a socialist. Whenever the socialists come to your country, you're in trouble. Don't ever vote for a socialist because they'll, they'll tear your country apart. That's what happens everywhere socialism goes. And Hitler was a socialist. The Nazi means National Socialist Party. Uh, he was completely maniacal and demonic and anti-Semitic. And so he wanted to completely wipe out the Jewish race. Now what's interesting is that there are even reports among the Jews of cannibalism within the concentration camp. So it's like God's prophecies for them were fulfilled over and over and over again, even in different times, in different places, and in different uh, generations. For example, uh, this was an article from the Guardian newspaper on Thursday, April 19th, 1945, after the Allied troops arrived and started to uh, uh, capture these concentration camps and really the horrors of what the Germans were doing, the Nazis were doing, was then uh, exposed in all of its uh, horror. And we read this, General Dempsey's senior medical officer said today that the Belsen prison camp near Bremen, with its thousands of typhus, typhoid, and tuberculosis tuberculosis cases was the most horrible, frightful place he had ever seen. Here are some things that he saw. There was a pile between 60 to 80 yards long, 30 yards wide, and 4 feet high of the unclothed bodies of women, all within sight of several hundred children. Gutters were filled with rotting dead, and men had to come to the gutters to die using curbstones as backrests. The prison doctors tell me that cannibalism is going on, the medical officer said. There was no flesh on the bodies. The liver, the kidneys, and the heart were knifed out. There were five to seven births daily, but there was no water. Unbelievable atrocities that the Jewish people suffered. And so it is a miracle of biblical proportions that the Jews survived the Holocaust, that they survived 1,900 years not having a homeland scattered around the world, and that they were regathered to the nation of Israel and put back into their homeland in our lifetime in 1948. And so it is amazing how God fulfills his word. In November of 1947, I think it was November 29th, the United Nations voted officially for the first time, really in the last time, uh, in favor of the Jews. The United Nations are not a friend to the Jews, typically. But this time they felt sorry for the Jews because they had just discovered the horrors of the Holocaust. Matter of fact, the Jews were trying to even flee Europe during the Holocaust, before the Holocaust, and after the Holocaust, and having a difficult time. The British had blockades and wouldn't even let the Jews come into their homeland. The British were blocking them, again, because they didn't want to upset the oil-producing Arab nations at the time. So for all of the world body of, of nations to 
agree that the Jews deserve a chance. The Jews deserve their own land. The Jews deserve some, some help from, from, from the world after what they've been through. It was the first and the only time really in, in history that the world came together to support the Jews uh, in their desire to have a homeland. So in November 1947, the United Nations voted to allow the Jews to go back to their ancestral homeland and to become a nation again. And then on May 14, 1948, uh, the, uh, they were basically declared as an independent nation by the Jews. They were attacked by seven Arab armies, and against all odds, they overcame overwhelming odds against the nations that were attacking them, uh, and they actually won their war of independence, again, incredibly, unbelievably, and against all odds. So we go back to... This prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 37. And we continue reading in verse 12. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open up your graves and cause you to come up from your graves, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves. I will put my spirit in you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and have performed it, says the Lord. And so when you have all of that history that we know of now and you see what an incredible a picture God gave them. I, I believe that what God showed Ezekiel was the Holocaust. I believe that God showed Ezekiel the bones of the Jews scattered as the Allied forces came in and they took pictures and they have film of what the concentration camps look like. Look, they couldn't burn the bodies fast enough. They were trying to kill all the Jews. They couldn't burn the bodies fast enough. The Allied forces were coming closer and closer to free these concentration camps. And so uh, they just left these skeletons and piles like, you know, dry bones, like mountains of bones. You've seen the pictures. They don't even look like human beings. They look like cordwood stacked or in piles. Uh, you know, they needed bulldozers to, to dig holes to bury these bones all over Europe where they had these concentration camps. And I believe that God showed Ezekiel this scene of Israel's future and showed him the Holocaust and showed him the bones of the people of the Jews and asked him, can these bones live? And what would you say if you saw those pictures? Can these bones live? Ezekiel said, well, you know, God. I don't know, but you know. Only you could bring these bones back to life. And that's exactly what God has done. It was a physical rebirth of the nation of Israel. They were regathered into the land, prepared for his people, brought back in unbelief. There was a physical rebirth, and then there will be the spiritual rebirth, and then there will be the Messiah who will come, and it will be the national salvation for the Jews, and all of Israel will be saved. Verse 15 says again, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, As for you, son of man, take a stick for yourself and write on it, for Judah and for the children of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and write on it, for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel, his companions. Then join them to one another for yourself into one stick, and they will become one in your hand. And when the children of your people speak to you, saying, Will you not show us what you mean by these? Say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Surely I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel his companions, and I will join them with it, with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they will be one in my hand. And the sticks on which you write will be in your hand before their eyes. Then say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations, wherever they have gone, and will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all. They shall no longer be two nations, nor shall they ever be divided into two kingdoms again. And so God is making another prediction. 
Remember when Ezekiel wrote this prophecy, it was two nations. It was the nation of Israel, the ten northern tribes, and the nation of Judah, the two southern tribes. They had two kings. The nation of Israel had been carried away captive. The nation of Judah was now carried away captive into Babylon. And yet God is saying there's going to come a day when you're going to be reunited. You're not going to be two nations anymore. When I regather you to, to your land, after the dry bones have come back to life and I brought them back to life, you're not going to be two nations. It's not going to be Israel and Judah anymore. You're going to be one nation again, and you're going to have one king. Interestingly, they are not divided into two nations anymore. They're one nation, just like God predicted. You go to Israel today, it's all Israel. It's not Israel in the north and Judah uh, in the south. And there is this uh, promised Messiah who is coming, who is going to rule and reign over them in fulfillment of all of God's prophecies to the Jews. He says in verse 23, they shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. But I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned, and I will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. And David my servant shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. Then they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob, my servant, where your fathers dwelt, and they shall dwell there, they, their children, and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. And so now God is saying, after they come back into their land, after being scattered all over the earth and without hope, he says, you're going to be one nation, not two, and I am going to bring David, my servant, to be king over you. Well, that's speaking of Jesus, the son of David, Jesus, the one who came in fulfillment of the prophecies, the Davidic covenant, that one of David's seed will sit on the throne in Jerusalem and rule over God's people forever and ever. And so we, we've seen a whole bunch of this prophecy already fulfilled. Some of this has not yet been fulfilled. There's still future prophecies to be fulfilled, but God's telling us kind of the whole picture here of what's going to happen eventually and probably very soon Jesus is going to come back Jesus is going to save the Jews and Jesus is going to be their king and they're going to receive him as their king they're going to look upon him whom they pierced and mourn for him as one mourns for an only son Zechariah chapter 12 tells us and so this is what's coming for the Jews much of this has already been fulfilled some of it has yet to be fulfilled in Jeremiah chapter 23 and verse 5, Jeremiah the prophet says this, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is the name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. And so God has to, he must, fulfill his promises to the Jews. And he has and he will fulfill all of his covenantal promises to the Jews. Again, in Jeremiah chapter 33 and verse 14, Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will perform that good thing which I have promised to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. He shall execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell safely. And this is the name by which she will be called the Lord our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. Nor shall the priests, the Levites, lack a man to offer burnt offerings before me, to kindle grain offerings, and to sacrifice continually. So God is saying there's going to be an eternal heir of King David that's going to sit on the throne of Israel forever. And we know that this is speaking of Jesus Christ. He continues, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, verse 19, Thus says the Lord, if you could break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that there will be no day, or, or, so there will be not day or night in their season, then my covenant may also be broken with David my servant, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne, and with the Levites, the priests, my ministers, as the host of heaven cannot be numbered, 
nor the sand of the sea measured. So I will multiply the descendants of David, my servant, and the Levites who minister to me. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Have you not considered what these people have spoken, saying, The two families which the Lord has chosen, he has also cast them off? Thus, they have despised my people, as if they should no more be a nation before them. Thus says the Lord, if my covenant is not with day and night, and if I have not appointed the ordinance of heaven and earth, then I will cast away the descendants of Jacob and David my servant, so that I will not take any of his descendants to be rulers over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for I will cause their captives to return, and I will have mercy upon them. How many times does God have to make this promise for the church to believe that it's true? It's a tragedy that the majority of churches do not believe that God has a plan for the Jews. They dismiss all of this. The Reformed churches, the Catholic churches, the Anglican church, and so many others. I'm not here to judge, but they are wrong. And it was, it's that teaching of replacement theology that led to Hitler's thinking and to the thinking of the Holocaust of Nazi Germany. Uh, they basically just treat the Jews as those who killed Christ instead of as God's chosen people who he has eternal covenants and promises to fulfill. In the latter days, and we are living, no doubt, in the latter days, Hosea says this about Israel's return. Hosea chapter 3, verse 4. <clears throat> For the children of Israel shall abide many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or teraphim. Afterward, Hosea 3, 5, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days, the last days. So we would expect to see. If we're the generation living in the last days, that the Jews would be restored to their land. That's exactly what we see. We would expect to see if we're living in the latter days that all hope uh, would be lost for the nation of Israel. That they would be like a pile of dry bones with no life in them, no hope, no chance. And then God would breathe life into them, regather them to the land of Israel, which is exactly what we see. If we were living in the last days, we'd expect to see they wouldn't be two kingdoms anymore. They would be one nation again as they were at the beginning, which is exactly what we see we would expect to see that the children of Israel would abide many days without a king. Well, for 2,500 years, they still don't really have a king there today. Uh, that was what God predicted. That's exactly what we have seen. And yet, when the children of Israel return after a period of time of not having a king and being dispersed, and they seek the Lord their God and David their king, then their Messiah is going to come. That's still future. The rest of it's already happened. Now, next week, we're going to look at the final message in this series uh, with the incredible prophecy of the future war, which is imminent between Israel, Russia, Iran, and Turkey. And the players are there. The stage is set. God predicted this war 2,550 years ago, and it might happen any day, as you will see next week. What an amazing, amazing God that the Lord, uh, who we serve, is so faithful to his people and so faithful to keep his promises. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Jews. We thank you for the nation of Israel, who you will not forever cast off, Lord. You love your people, the Jews. You've made promises and covenants with them and to them, Lord. And Lord, as you say, you do not do this for their sake, but for your own name's sake. Help us, Lord God, to have understanding. Help, Lord, the uh, uh, scales to fall off of our eyes that we would begin to see that we're living in the days of Ezekiel, the prophet. We're seeing these prophecies fulfilled right in our lifetime. They're in uh, the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem, in Yad Vashem. They have these scriptures posted up on, on the uh, walls and posted up uh, on the monuments. These scriptures from Ezekiel 36 and 37. The Jews understand that you have brought them back into their land, Lord, after 2,000 years. And Lord, that your, your Messiah will 
come and your Messiah will rule and reign over Jerusalem and over all the earth. So, Father, help us to be those who are diligent. Help us to be those who are faithful to you. May we take heart that you will always perform your word, Lord. The blessings, the promises, and the warnings are all there for us. They're all true. And not one word of God will ever fail to come to pass. Bless us this week. Bless your people. Strengthen us. Encourage us for the days ahead. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We all want to thank you for listening. If this message has blessed you, as we all pray that it has, send the link to this podcast to your friends. Working together, we can get Michael's teaching of the whole of God's inerrant word to all those who hunger to hear it. If you would like to see this ministry expand to reach even more of the broken and lost, if you have questions, comments, and prayer requests, Email us at coahpodcast at gmail.com. We would be honored to pray for you, as we hope you are praying for us. Good day and God bless from City on a Hill Church to Hatchapi, California.